I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending May 8th. In this episode, an interview with Renee James, CEO of Ampere Semiconductor and former president of Intel Corp. We talk about video conferencing, how Ampere is taking on Intel for a slice of the data center market, and how the cloud market is going to grow. Also, ARM has been talking about the server market for years, but so far has made little progress there. And now we have Ampere and several other companies relying on processor cores from ARM to target the server market. We called up Tyrius analyst Kevin Crewell to ask him, why ARM and why now? Before we get to the program, we'd like to thank this week's sponsor, Fujipali America. Visit Fujipali's Engineering Resource Center at fujipali.com USA for unrestricted access to useful white papers, webinars, and an extensive collection of Sarkon Thermal Interface Material Performance data sheets. Data centers process boggling amounts of data. Every online app runs somewhere, and that somewhere is usually a data center. Anything that happens in the cloud, also a data center. Every time you talk to Siri or Google Assistant, data centers again. Servers make data centers run. The server market is prestigious, big, and lucrative, and Intel completely and utterly dominates the market. AMD, Intel's next nearest competitor, has managed to wrestle away only about 5% of the business. The only thing that Intel can do at this point is lose market share, if someone can take it. Several companies have popped up believing they can do it. One of those is Ampere Semiconductor. Now, if anyone knows what Intel's weaknesses might be, it would be someone familiar with Intel, and few are more familiar with Intel than its former president, Renee James, who is now the CEO of Ampere. Ampere has developed an IC called Ultra. An Ultra chip can come with up to 80 single-threaded cores operating at up to 3 GHz speeds. Despite the beast mode performance specs, the Ultra is power efficient due to its ARM-based cores. The company also sells Ultra chips in a dual-socket rack server it calls Mount Jade. I was all set to have a meeting in person with James and Jeff Wittich, Ampere's Senior Vice President of Products, and then the pandemic hit. So even though our offices are less than five miles away from each other, we ended up talking via a video conferencing app. I hate video. You know, I don't know if you remember, I'm sure you do, because you've been doing this a long time. And Intel had this video conferencing like 4A when I was younger. Right. Pro share. Remember that? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Okay. A friend of mine who's retired, the two of us worked. Um, well, we both worked on ProShare. It was like hell on earth. I was in the labs working on streaming video, making streaming video and audio work on a PC without any acceleration hardware. Hello. You can thank us for inventing all this crap. So this friend of mine, she became like one of my best friends. I got moved into, into the ProShare group under Mr. Gelsinger. She was his, his um, COO to like ran the group. So we worked on ProShare for like five years. And I said to her, as we were Zoom lunching on Friday, I said to her, seriously, this is what it's come to. We're doing ProShare for our every day, all day. Like I hated it then, 
and I was like 20 years younger and I actually looked okay on video and I hated it. This is, this is a nightmare, but <laughs> I digress. And now here we are, we're building microprocessors for servers. Is this not the greatest? Actually, it's super fun. I mean, otherwise I'd be retired if it wasn't fun. It's super fun. Although I have to admit the highlight of my day was listening to you and Yunko talk about Nubia. On your podcast. Oh yeah. It's been a while. That's right. I forgot about I that. I was like, yeah. Hey, I'm going to listen to his Nubia podcast and see what's going on. <laughs> Were we close? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, if I listen to all these people, they all have something. Look, um, I always say this to my customers. I didn't do. I didn't start this company to prove to people I knew how to build microprocessors. Barry knew how to do that. And when it turns out, we built server processors, the best ones, because ninety nine percent of the world uses them. Right. So, my my view was like, isn't there something else? Isn't there something that comes next? I told you this when we talked before. And so we've been like in our little in our little bubble, building, building, building. You know, working hard in our little factory. And now we have real silicon. In fact, we have multiple products done. And we haven't been yakking enough because what's mm. clear is the more, the more you talk, like all these other people are like, well, what about Nubia? And I'm like, I don't know. I have a seven nanometer 80 core part. Would you like to try it? Like in my hand? Like, can you want to try that? Oh, and my 128 core parts is, is taped in. Would you like that? Would you like to try that? Oh, and my five nanometer test chip taped in. And like, you know. <laughs> and people well, that's the thing. Yeah, if you don't talk about it, people don't know you have it. Well, there's a thing in this business that says, you know what? Silicon talks for itself. You don't need to get Is that true? If it's good enough. Yeah. Oh, okay. You know that. I mean, in the end, customers never, ever really believe you until they see the silicon. Like yeah. they might take it on faith because you've built a lot of products before, they know you or whatever, but at the end they have to see silicon. So I decided there wasn't a big point in talking a whole bunch until we had silicon, which we now have. So I guess we need to yik yak more. All right. So what are what are your customers telling you? Uh, well, our customers are telling us um, they like it, right, Jeff? I mean, Jeff is is yeah. uh, Jeff and I are like on the front lines together with sales on customers. I think they're really encouraged about the design approach and the potential, you know, the performance that we're reaching. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm suppose there's a part of them that's like, we're not getting extra credit. Like, you know, we built something amazing and they're like, okay, yeah, but um, you don't, you're not getting extra credit for building something amazing, even though we made arm do something that's never done before. And, you know, you might want to know how we figured out how to do that, but, no, no, no. Because unfortunately, like our pedigree isn't building a bunch of cell phones, right? We didn't work at Apple and we didn't build cell phones. It turns out we worked at Intel and we built server chips. So they're not, they're not, they're not going, hey, you super geniuses. They're like, hey, yeah, we figured you guys might get this. Well, and I think what they're, you know, I think what they're super excited about too is we're not just putting a product out there that's a Me Too that delivers the same kind of performance that they've been getting or similar type of power efficiency, right? We're leading at performance, power efficiency, scalability, but we're doing it in a way that is very different than what they could get today. So on the performance side, right, it's having predictable performance so they can scale really easily across a ton of containers or yeah. a ton of functions or a ton of microservices. So at the aggregate level, we have the most performance, but we're doing it in a way that is just much, much more honed in on how they're actually using compute 
I think the, inter the interesting thing, having been um, gone through the convincing people to use 64 bit, convincing people to use threading, convincing people these, you know, that hyper threading was great. I think what we've learned is, and we, and we know that the guys, you know, bored on the internet or hyperscalers or, you know, even these fast growing, um, we, people like to think of them as small companies, but they're really not small. I mean, if you go and really look at how big ByteDance is or how big Rakuten, these guys are big and they are growing fast. They really are reacting very positively to it being oriented towards cloud software, meaning single core performance, lots of isolation, being very power efficient. Um, so I think that there are things about our design that are uniquely oriented for what's the software that's grown up in the last, you know, decade, if you will, mm -hmm. and not really oriented towards the, you know, kind of that enterprise, you know, on-prem kind of situation. So I think, Jeff, that's the biggest thing. I mean, when you listen to the mm -hmm. customers, they get very excited because we, because as soon as you tell them about all the, out of the performance, they ask the power question. Then you answer it, they go, what? <laughs> excited about that. So. So are there any particular workflows that people are saying, hey, this is perfect for what I'm doing? Or is it just such a cool performance boost that just about everybody who finally gets it says, oh, that that could be useful to me? I think, well, I think anything containers. Um, so running Kubernetes, for instance, is, uh, is probably one of the, the best examples to point out. And uh, so we've run things with some customers. Uh, we've, we've got some data out there that really shows that a number of things. Uh, the scalability is a lot better. You can go ahead and provision additional containers and not see performance fall over at a certain point. Just a lot less overhead. Uh, you're able to maintain performance even in the midst of context switching more easily. So I think any kind of container environment, but especially Kubernetes is one that's really shown so far. And obviously, all the major cloud guys either are deploying containers for their own deployments or they have some sort of a managed container environment for their end customers. So a lot of opportunities there. Yeah. Excellent. So um, great performance out of, uh, out of your silicon, helping just about uh, any kind of containerized uh, approach. Can I talk to you about uh, trends in data centers and how you hope to dovetail in with those trends? Um. Be more specific about trends. I mean, you know, I think there's lots of things going on because there's been a lot of data center growth. And, you know, one of the underlying trends is, you know, the big data center guys have their own data centers, they have their own footprints, and then they have this, how do I fit more performance or new performance into this footprint that I have in a more efficient way? So I think Jeff can talk about density because that is certainly something that um, we have have a great solution for. On some of these um, newer, faster growing, um, really interesting, you know, kind of born on the cloud companies, they are transitioning from co-location facilities to wanting to do their own. And they're thinking about things differently. And we just had a call the other night with a customer, potential customer, who really wants to build out their own. And they want to do it in a very unique and highly dense and power efficient way. And so I, I think those are those are two trends that keep coming back, which whether it's how do I get more into this footprint that I've built and I've invested into and upgrade this footprint, and how do I build something fresh and new, whether it's on the edge so it's a little smaller, or maybe it's mm -hmm. in a place that has less ability, you know, to give me that full scale power or what have you, 
or I want to I want to build something in a more efficient way. I, I guess Jeff, those are the two things that I've heard repetitively. Yeah, no, I think that's a good way of looking at the, the power efficiency piece because there's kind of three things that enabled that you mentioned. One is just I want to be more efficient. I want to save power. That's a responsible thing to do. Yeah. Obviously, there's been there's been a ton of innovation over the last ten or fifteen years to keep data center power where it is, but all the easy things have kind of been done at this point. So the things that need to occur next, I mean, they're the harder and harder things to do. So we need to just fundamentally change the way that we think of efficiency at the CPU level. So there's but just- nobody wants less power. performance. They don't want less performance yeah. to get to that power mm-hmm. efficiency. So they're not willing to give up the performance in any way, right, Jeff? I mean, I think that's been a exactly. conundrum. Yep, yep. And so I think this is finally the first time where you're able to deliver something that is hitting the performance level that people need for the cloud, and for data center, but to do so in a fundamentally different way in a much lower power envelope. So really kind of bend the curve from what they've been uh, experiencing for the last five or 10 years. So I think one, I mean, there's just power efficiency. Two, that Renee mentioned, you have density when you're a hyperscaler. Small increases in density are hugely important because the costs cascade through whether it's all of the power infrastructure, the cooling infrastructure, data center footprint, the overhead to build new data center, Right. That's all super important. And then the third piece of power efficiency is just it lets you deploy in places that you otherwise couldn't, you know, out at the edge where maybe you need a 45 watt processor because you have uh, no ability to cool it, no fans. It's going to be running in high temperature environments, you know, the base station. Right. You need to have a part that you can deploy out there. And hopefully it's the same kind of part you can also deploy in your uh, in your central data centers when you have a, a bigger power budget. Yeah, I think that's an actually very interesting trend, especially with 5G, where the the concept of what's in the, you know, what's at the other end needs to be as performant as what's in your, you know, hyperscale main data centers, because you're not going to change your software, right? right? So you're wanting to build all these services, but you need to have edge servers, but the edge servers have to be super performant. So I do think that the power performance thing is becoming even more interesting at the edge you know, as it is in, in, the, in the main data centers. But it is a common theme. Yeah, I was going to ask about whether the, uh, the architecture of trying to move more uh, processing out to the edge kind of plays to your strength, and it sounds like the answer is yes. I think it does. I think a couple of things. You know, um, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's not like ARM's a new architecture, right? I mean, we've been fellow travelers, you know, in the x86 world with ARM for a long time. I guess we never really credibly thought about ARM as a server part, if you will, until now. And I think so many things have changed, right? They, the um, Certainly the access to incredible node progression with TSMC, um, the ARM architecture's grown up, and there are just a ton of developers who work on ARM. So one, one thing that we all know is that when there's, when there's a, um, a new segment of computing that emerges, like edge, which we can't even define, like what the hell is edge, but let's just say we all pretend we know what we mean, um, that developers go to that, right, around the ser- these you know, new service opportunities. And guess what? They're all coming from either you know, embedded, telco, phone, what have you, and they're ARM developers, and they really know the ARM ecosystem. So I do think that having ARM servers, and we've heard this from customers, this has come out, having an ARM server to be able to serve certain kinds of applications, you know, we get, we get developers who understand it, we already have ARM code, 
you know, there's things that we didn't appreciate because we always looked at it from glass half full, which is look at all, we got to get containers optimized. We got to get job optimized. So those, those are the hard things we've been doing for two and a half years to wait a minute. There's all these arm developers. There are way more arm developers. And one thing, Brian, I think that the industry has always known is that developers and the developer base is what solidifies the platform. You came from Intel. How did that pass you by? What do you mean? Yeah, I mean, isn't that then like the, the x86, uh, the, the part of the secret weapon? You've always had a million developers. Yes, my friend, I built it. I spent I spent over 15 years running the software group at Intel. I know. I know why, it well. Why yes. is this a revelation to you? This isn't a revelation to me. It's oh, just okay. that I always thought 2 billion cell phones didn't translate into server work. And I think that the world has converged. Like uh, maybe right time, right place, right? Arm, Arm is now um, better performance in, in the server world going in the trajectory that the data center world wants to go and connecting to all those things that have been building up in the community for the last decade. You know, that, that, that wasn't the case. So I have to say, I think that's a big opportunity for us. I think that's why you see a renewed excitement about arms, arm and server, right? There's been waves. There've been pioneers. Right. They didn't quite make it to the promised land. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, I'm wondering if I could ask you to just give us kind of like a, an overview of what uh, what the demand in the market is looking like. I I think we have the combination of you know several different things happening. There is still unabated growth in what we would call the the data center segment, the cloud segment. Um, in addition to that, what we're seeing is what you would have thought of or people would call, you know, tier two companies. They're really becoming tier ones. They're growing up. They're growing faster. We see them, you know, kind of just there's just, just this boom. So the big, you know, cloud eight or nine are now probably going to be joined by another several. So we see we, we see that continued growth. I do think that there is a movement. It's not as fast. It will take some time for the telecommunications slash 5G um, group of activities to start to turn over. They're always kind of a little bit slower, but you see it now. You can see the interest from the telcos. You can see it in the interest from companies that have been smart embedded but want to move up to the next thing. So I don't know how to quantify that, and I don't know what to call it. I have no idea what to call that. I think we call it edge, but that seems wrong. So I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, we see but, Jeff nodding vig- vigorously uh, here. Jeff's nodding. Jeff, yeah. That's because Jeff is better at this than I am. But you know what's really, I mean, if it were just the cloud growth, which we can quantify and we can label, that would be a phenomenal thing. But it's bigger than that. And it's converging around a kind of a combination hybrid architecture between the traditional hyperscale clouds and what has been telco edge. So we're starting to see this overlap, which is all good. It just means it's going to be a bigger market and it means that it's going to persist. I mean, I think this is, this is the segment of computing that we're going to see growth in for a while, like we did in phones for years like we did in PCs, and then they kind of get to this asymptotic, you know, 350 million, 400 million, 300 million, you know, like this thing, 2 billion, 1.8 billion, 2 billion, you know, like, okay. And they don't go away. They just are kind of, they are what they are. I don't think we're there yet on cloud, edge, blah, 5G, blah. 
That was a technical term. That was a technical term. That's okay. Yes. I don't know, Jeff, what you, you're, Jeff will be more articulate for sure. <laughs> no, I mean, I agree that I think one, I guess one way that people refer to it is maybe it's the cloudification of the network, mm-hmm. um, which is maybe a bit of an awkward mm-hmm. term, but, you know, I think that idea of whether you're virtualizing or moving to cloud native or whatever it is you're doing, but just moving off of purpose-built hardware uh, and appliances and suddenly running on standard off-the-shelf commodity hardware with a software model that's a lot more flexible and scalable, that, you know, that, that's a huge trend right there. And I think that also plays, though, into enterprise, too, because while this isn't new either, I mean, just the idea that enterprises are also going through um, their own process of becoming cloud native, changing their workflows, changing the way they look at software development, moving to more of a DevOps model, right? And then that makes it both easy for them to move to the cloud, uh, and it also just accelerates it because they start to see all of those those efficiencies. So I think on top of just the normal kind of run rate growth of the cloud, you've got you know, the network piece, you've got enterprise moving to cloud native, and then you've got new workloads um, that are continuing to, to drive new usages. So AI um, is a big one of those. And then, you know, you mentioned cable. I mean, a lot of the over-the-top services and video delivery, and as those get smarter and smarter, and you start to end up kind of merging that with AR and VR, obviously there's a ton of opportunities there and that's all going to get serviced. Jeff, sorry to interrupt you. One thing I think about is irrespective of the use case or where it comes from, volumetrically, the server business has always been an order of magnitude smaller than say devices or PCs, well not devices, many orders, but PCs. The volumetric change in servers I think is the most stunning part about this. Right. We're going from a market that, while it's super technical and it's very lucrative, it's actually small volume on a relative basis compared to PCs and or, you know, by phones, it's like a whole other, you know, thing. So that, that change is significant because uh, it supports a very different market model and, and m- perhaps a different number of players, then a business, you know, the enterprise server business was a certain size. It grew at a certain rate. I think we're seeing we're seeing a, a dynamic shift right now. I think that's more interesting to me that the underlying um, economic opportunity of servers is changing. When it was kind of um, growing at a certain rate, and there's one dominant player, and maybe the other one's taking a little share off. It's hard to break into a market like that versus what's going on right now. Is there anything about your market or anything about the market in general that I've neglected to ask about that has you guys jazzed or that you're interested in or just, you know, trying to keep keep monitoring? I mean, you know, I'm excited about all the innovation, right? Like who knew servers would be cool again? And that, I mean, because, you know, when you go and you tell people that you're building these things, they're like, what? And it has how many cores? Like, it's just a, it's an esoteric, mind-blowing, like, oh, and then we're going to make a rocket and put people on the moon. You know, so I'm excited that it's something people care about. It's fun to be in the growth segment. It's more fun to have the most modern product, right? So, you know, that rocks. James mentioned a previous podcast. And the mention was completely spontaneous, I might add. A previous podcast in which we discussed Nuvia, another company that is using ARM cores to target the data center server market. If you'd like to give that a listen, that's our episode from November 22nd. It's called China's 28 Billion Big Fund, 
the cockiest startup, Sony's Ambitions. There's a link to it on this episode's dedicated webpage, as well as on our general podcast page at eetimes.com slash podcasts. ARM built its reputation providing cores for processors that went into smartphones. By necessity, those cores had to be incredibly power efficient and were. ARM has been saying for years that that power efficiency is going to eventually become very germane to data center operators. And for years, it hasn't been germane enough for data center operators to buy servers built around ARM-based cores. Companies such as Ampere clearly think the time is right, however. For perspective on all things silicon, we rely on the knowledge of our friends from Tirius Research. This week, we welcome back Tirius analyst Kevin Crewell. So, Kevin, can you give us a, a uh, overview of the storied history of ARM attempting to get into the data center? Well, ARM has not been in the data center all that long. Uh, you know, obviously, ARM started off in low-power computing and, and smartphones, and that's where the vast majority of their market is in IoT devices and that. But um, they've been, you know, working their way into the data center over the last you know, six, seven years. And uh, the the goal was, as ARM cores got more and more powerful uh, in terms of performance, uh, they were also very still very power efficient. So you can get a lot of performance for lower power. And data centers have become very sensitive to power. So with an ARM core, you could pack more of these CPU cores into one chip at a lower power point than would have been if you were building an x86 processor and jamming it in because x86, you tend to uh, focus on performance first and power second, whereas ARM tends to focus on a balance of lower power with a certain level of performance. And with more performance cores coming out of ARM, it now made additional sense. And 64-bit was a key factor. Uh, ARM had to move beyond for 32-bit to a 64-bit core. And and so this makes made a lot of sense. So a number of companies started to get into it. Uh, a number are still in it, and a few companies are startups and are uh, building brand new chips uh, and haven't produced their products yet and haven't. But we got a ways to go. In addition, we have companies like uh, AWS, or the Amazon Web Services guys, who built their own ARM server core called Graviton, and they've recently you released a second generation Graviton. So we're seeing a, a, a very healthy ecosystem, some of which are the cloud providers themselves building their own chips, some of which are third-party companies uh, building chips. And then you also got like Huawei uh, building ARM cores for their own internal use as well. Right. And so there's all these little startups coming up trying to fill a space um, that we're starting with Intel having a, a near monopoly on, on on the server market for data centers. 95% plus of the market, AMD has been edging in. Uh, as you just mentioned, some of the, the, the big web services companies making their own. Um, I imagine there's plenty of room for a company like like Ampere or some of these other startups looking at uh, using ARM cores to get into the data center. Yeah, uh, the uh, there's definitely is. I mean, there's uh, two main suppliers today in the United States, and that's Ampere and Marvell. 
uh, both have multi-core, you know, tens of cores uh, and a die. Uh, and those companies are finding, you know, a good market. Uh, it's still a pretty nascent market, but there are some immediate applications. Uh, there are a number of companies that are developing software for mobile phones, either streaming mobile games or doing software development on a virtual phone um, in, a, in the cloud or in on a data center. And having a native ARM core to run those applications on in a data center makes a lot of sense. It saves you from emulating it. Um, so that works out. That's one immediate need. And then uh, the, in general, most of the uh, application uh, workloads are pretty portable. So uh, you can migrate those to ARM and ARM cores and the ecosystem there is very, uh, very broad. And there's lots of applications, there's lots of operating systems that run on ARM that are data center qualified, including like Red Hat and SUSE Linux and all those. Can you succeed with um, just a processor? As if, as if having just a processor isn't enough. But uh, when you're looking at a data center, there's um, there's so many things to balance, including uh, how quickly you can get to memory, uh, even the interconnect between servers, the internet interconnect between server racks. It all gets wildly complicated. And Marvell, for instance, is looking at uh, it has some multiple of those pieces. Um, does that give them any natural advantage at all? Do you think? You know, actually, I don't. There may be in some smaller aspects to that. I mean, I don't see that as a critical factor. Just like you know, Intel has tried playing in the the data center racks and uh, haven't been all that successful uh, uh, in in trying to dominate the backbone. Uh, I think there's enough third-party companies doing backbone chips uh, that it's disaggregated enough. That I don't think those are you can leverage one against the other. Um, you know, AMD is another example. AMD, aside from the Epic processor, doesn't own any other part of the data center. Really, it doesn't have memory, um, doesn't have networking. So uh, I, you could still be a pretty much a, uh, a pure play uh, server chip manufacturer and and still be successful. So I don't see that as a problem. Do you have any sense of how uh, the market opens up as um, the edge expands? As uh, you know, you've got all you know the last uh, ten or fifteen years. Uh, you've got a small number of companies building these enormous data centers. Um, you know, billions of dollars, sinking billions of dollars into these giant, giant data centers that, you know, they, they need to site next to like major dams in order to get enough energy. Um, and then, uh, and, and then there's the IOT pops up and people are saying, no, we need more computing power distributed in far more places. Does that feel like a, a bigger opportunity for, uh, competitors to Intel to come into, um, the server market? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, uh, edge servers as, as some people call them, are showing up. They're they're uh, they're called an edge server uh, because um, they're not in the data center. There's no there's nobody can go to the rack and pull out a, a memory card or pull out a a storage uh, and then service it. Uh, edge servers tend to be out 
uh, in a closed environment, hard to service. So they have to be very reliable. They have to be low power because uh, usually there's limitations on power. And yet they still have to be performant enough that they can do a, a distributed workload. Some of those, especially as 5G is rolling out, uh, there, there's more intelligence going into the uh, ORAN networks that are close to the edge. Uh, so you're getting uh, these uh, radio access networks popping up. And, and by putting the, uh, the server close to the edge, uh, it reduces latency and uh, improves performance overall of the network. So the key there is, though, is low power, um, and that's where ARM servers do really well. And there's no uh, incumbent to those uh, remote uh, edge servers. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, a wide open opportunity for a lot of people to play it. So I, it's, I, think, I think it's a good opportunity for ARM especially. All right. Well, Kevin, thank you very much for your input. I appreciate it. No problem. The data center rack server market was worth $52.1 billion in 2019. Market research firm ReportLinker expects that to grow to $102 billion by 2024. That's doubling in size in just five years. Even if that projection is optimistic, you can see why semiconductor companies think they have a shot at siphoning off some of Intel's business. And speaking of flightless waterfowl, it's now time for one of our occasional forays into the history of technology, celebrating anniversaries of notable events. On May 14th in 1973, NASA lofted Skylab into space. It was the second station in orbit. The first was Salyut 1, which the USSR had launched in 1971. There were three missions to Skylab in 1973. A fourth in 1974 was canceled. The module is pretty spacious. Check out our webpage where we have a video of one of the astronauts jogging inside. They even had a dartboard, which sounds like a very bad idea, until you realize it was made of Velcro. Skylab was supposed to have been backed up by the Space Shuttle program, but the Space Shuttle program experienced development delays. When Skylab's orbit began to deteriorate, there was some hope a shuttle could still be prepared quickly enough to help reposition it, but it wasn't to be. NASA deliberately ditched Skylab in 1979. The station burned up mostly over the Indian Ocean. The only thing left was a few pieces of the station that landed in Western Australia and a couple of really bad parody songs. On May 10th in 1954, The Institute of Radio Engineers was holding its National Conference on Airborne Electronics in Dayton, Ohio. During one session, one engineer after another described the specific problems they were having creating a transistor out of this element called silicon that had all the properties they wanted in a semiconductor, but was notoriously difficult to work with. There was this one last presentation before everyone could go home. Is from some guy from Texas Instruments named Gordon Teal. Teal told them, Contrary to what my colleagues have told you about the bleak prospects for silicon transistors, I happen to have a few of them here in my pocket. Teal had a record player with him. He put on Artie Shaw's Summit Ridge Drive, and he noted that the amplifier used a germanium transistor, which he dunked into hot oil. The music stopped. He replaced the germanium transistor with a silicon transistor, cranked up the music again, dunked the silicon transistor in the hot oil. That kept playing. 
Now, it wasn't the first working silicon transistor. Bell Labs had made its first months earlier, but it didn't announce it. That IRE meeting in 1954 marked the first public announcement of a silicon transistor. TI was also first to make them in volume and the first to market with them. It had the market to itself for a couple of years. It sold them for $2.50 each. We have a picture of the transistor and a recording of Summit Ridge Drive on the website. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on iTunes, Android, Spotify, and Stitcher. But if you get to the podcast via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we refer to, along with the occasional photo and video. Visit www.eetimes.com and click where it says radio to find the full archive of podcasts. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.